0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sirius Weekly Seminar at Purdue University. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Dr. Florian Kirschbaum is a professor in the David R. Cheriton School of Computer Science at the University of Waterloo. He holds a PhD in computer science from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, and we're proud to say he's received his master's degree from Purdue University in 2001. His research focuses on security and privacy in the data science lifecycle. We're very excited to have him back at Purdue after all these years. Today, he is speaking about using differential privacy. Florian, welcome back to Purdue. Please take it away.
1: Well, thank you very much for that very nice introduction. Uh, I want to talk about uh, two recent research results uh, that uh, uh, I came up with, or we came up with as a group. So my group and I have been working on, and uh, I want to introduce you to those Um, so uh, many of you have probably seen this picture is uh, that uh, data is the new oil right was the uh, uh, the the title of it at the economist and uh, we clearly see that uh, data is creating huge economic value right so we have many sources of data we use those data in order to in, in machine learning applications we train machine learning applications to provide better services and with the, the uh, rise of the internet of things more and more data even about the physical world is going to be generated however if uh, you ask people who are data scientists what uh, they actually see as uh, the the major obstacles um, to uh, exploiting that data, then uh, uh, one problem consistently comes up and that is privacy. So 58% of the fortune 500 companies see a conflict between uh, data scientists and data security uh 95 four or 90 48 of prob, uh, people see data privacy or data security issues as the number two and four problems admittedly the number one problem is there are not enough data scientists but uh, a clear second is security and privacy so um it given this need for security and privacy um What can we do about it? Uh, There's a technique which is called differential privacy. And um, we see a lot of research on using differential privacy in machine learning, in uh, data science applications. And the assumption is that if we design differentially private uh, mechanisms, then uh, the information is being protected. Um, And today I want to talk a little bit about uh, how to use differential privacy in the right way, so what does differential privacy actually achieve and what does it not achieve. So for those of you who have not heard the term differential privacy first so far, I want to give a little bit of an introduction differential privacy is the idea that given two data sets that differ in one record. And this is a personal identifiable record. So we see a person here in the middle uh, who is present in database A but not present in database B. Then if I run a query, which a data uh, differential privacy people call a mechanism, um, over those two databases. The output should not change much. In particularly, what differential privacy does is that it turns that query into a probabilistic query, that into uh, a, a randomized query that has an output distribution. And on that output distribution, if you see uh, the equation on the bottom here, is there is a bound how much the output distribution can change between the two um, databases. So if I query database A and take any subset of the output, the probability of producing an output in that subset should not be higher than E to the epsilon, which is the privacy parameter epsilon, then uh, of the probability of doing that with the same query, the same mechanism over the database B, where that person is not present. So it is inherently a limitation on uh, the impact any individual record can have on the outcome of a, a, uh, a query. The, Assumption that is then made is if the impact of any individual is limited, therefore, the the inferences that can be made in the reverse way are limited and uh, uh, privacy is provided. And we're going to challenge that view a little bit today. So the first thing I want to talk about is why differential privacy does not protect against membership inference attacks as expected. Okay. So what's a membership inference attack? So if we have a target model, so a machine learning model, in this case, a neural network model uh, that was trained on some data. And on the left side, you see uh, training data was a whole bunch of training pictures. And on the right side, you see out of training set, right? You see data that was not used to train Uh, the data and you see a whole bunch of pets that were not part of uh, that training set. So given an individual sample that that is that picture in the middle, a membership inference attack now tries to determine did this picture belong to the training set or to the uh, out of training set. And uh, that is the determination that means I can determine from the model alone Uh, some private information about the people who were part of the training data set. So the model leaks information about the people who trained the model. So um, right from the start, I wanna say that membership inference is probabilistic, right? The output of a membership inference is, okay, the sample, the sample that is shown in the middle of the previous picture is a member or a non-member and um we measure as a success of the membership inference rate we measure the probability of this guess being a member or non-member being correct All right so it's a probability it is not always correct and this is also necessarily so so membership inference attacks cannot possibly be 100 percent correct In order to see that, you have to understand that machine learning training is a subjective randomized function. The training data set is much larger than the size of the model that you train, even the size of the models if you consider hyperparameter tuning. So by the pigeonhole principle, there must exist two different data sets which result in the same model. And in the same notion, there exists a sample whose membership cannot be determined with 100% accuracy from the model. Okay, so a membership inference attack must be probabilistic. It must be a guess whether or not a sample is in um, data set or not in the training data set. So what can you do with differential privacy against membership inference attacks? And one, one notion that you can use is what's known as differentially private learning. And you might have heard about differentially private stochastic gradient descent, which is uh, probably the most popular form for doing that uh, in neural networks. And again, we have uh, the, po- the potential of uh, two uh, training data sets, one with a record, one without a record. Then we have a training process. And now we have two models, uh, and if the training process is differentially private, the distribution um, of the output of the training process between those uh, two models should not differ by more than e to the epsilon, right? So depending on whether or not the record is in there, the probability of outputting one model should not increase by more than e to the epsilon. Now, it seems natural that differential privacy would prevent a membership inference attack, right? Because the impact of each member in differentially private training is bounded. So if that is bounded, a membership inference attack should only succeed with a bounded probability. And Yeom et al. were the first uh, to formalized this notion, and uh, uh, they gave a practical membership inference attack that worked very well for the time uh, it was invented. And they gave a proof that differentially private learning bounds the success of any membership inference attack. They give a, they give a specific bound uh, on how this turns out. So this is the formal game they came up with. Um, And this is a little uh, little this is kind of important to see, so what they do is you have a data distribution of all of the possible samples You sample a training data set and they assume independent identical distributed sampling, then you either sample a member from the data set or a non member from the distribution. And then depending on a bit B, you give either of the one to the adversary and the trained model, the target model to the adversary. Uh, he also gets the distribution, but we ignored that for now. But based on the target model and the sample, which with 50% probability is a member or, or with 50% probability is a non-member, the adversary is supposed to output its guess which of the two it is. And you can compute something which they call the membership advantage, which is uh, basically the true positive rate minus the false positive rate, or twice the probability that I guess is correct minus one. So it is somewhere bounded between zero and one. It's just scaled because this 50% probability you always guess right. It's scaled the upper part between zero and one. Now, there's follow up work uh, where uh, they took certain public data sets, trained them with uh, different um, accounting mechanisms uh, for differential privacy. And uh, you see here, the epsilon differentially private bound is the bounds that I'll uh, come up with. And they say like, look, I mean, even if we try, we really cannot get close uh, to this bound. So uh, the the gap between the the successful membership inference attack and the membership inference attacks, the theoretical bound is very wide. So it was assumed that differential privacy not only provides a protection, it provides actually a stronger protection than the bound would uh, suggest. Now, one thing to note here is if you look at those experiments, the models, the, the fact that they actually can perform a membership inference attack um, is only due to the fact that they heavily, significantly overfit the models. Right? So we, we sometimes have uh, uh, 100% training accuracy but test accuracy in, in the range of 20%. As low as 20% uh, in these experiments. So it's heavily overfitted models, and therefore the membership inference attacks work. Okay, so we thought that is interesting. However, we always read about differential privacy and the problems of differential privacy uh, under correlated data, right? You have dependent differential privacy for correlated data, and all these, these works who uh, uh, try to understand. Uh, how correlated data impacts differential privacy. Okay. So we took this experiment um, that Yao and Al did, and uh, we just wondered, what if we replace the IID sampling with a non-IID sampling? What happens then? We changed nothing else in their experiment. We use the same attacker. We just used just changed IID sampling to non-IID. And here's the result. So, he, this is a, res, a, a number. This is a specific membership inference attack. It's actually a slightly improved membership inference attack over uh, Yom's original um, proposal, but um, it is uh, the same algorithm that um, Yom et al. Uh, suggested. And we can have here four. Um, Datasets from four hospitals uh, from different regions of the world, and those are four very similar datasets. We trained the same classifier uh, for heart uh, disease prediction on all four classifiers, and uh, the non-IID is in blue, and the IID is in orange. And the IID bound by Yeom et al. is just depicted as this dashed line. Um, Now that the IID data breaks the bound is actually a mistake because of the sampling, but that the non-IID data, we can clearly see that this absolutely breaks the bound. So what we did, we used one hospital, and this is the hospital you see on the top line, as the in-depth training set data set and use the other three as the out of training data set. So clearly, clearly, if you use real world data sets, uh, the probability of uh, having a successful membership inference attack is much higher than the bound would allow. Okay, so, a few cautionary notes right away. So we used an unmodified membership inference attack by yeo al. So this attack has no background information on the distribution of members and non-members. We did not make any kind of assumption um, that the adver- the, uh, the attack knows any kind of background information. It's exact same algorithm that et al used where they actually had proven the bound. It's just that the threshold that they use is slightly optimized. We used real world data sets. This is data sets that you can find on the internet. And we used standard machine learning training. Our models do not overfit. There is no overfitting in those models. It's not due to overfitting. Our, the training and the test accuracy on those data sets is very close. So, however, clearly the attack exceeds the bound for non-IID data. So the only possible conclusion is that differentially privacy does not protect as expected by Yeomidal, against membership inference attacks in a real world classifier. It's the only possible conclusion. Okay, so we now need to investigate auth- why, why do we have this behavior? So the first thing that, that we also noted is that the uh, bound could actually be tighter. So the proof, if we make an IRD assumption could be tighter. And uh, there was already a tighter bound in uh, another paper by Alex on it all. However, we gave an even tighter bound. And if you do not if you make black box assumption about the training process, and don't go into specific training processes like differential, uh, like DPSGD or others, then this is the tightest bound that you can possibly prove. And then we also asked ourselves, okay, now we have this tighter bound. What can we possibly do? How how bad is the situation if we violate this assumption of IID data? So we try to create a worst case. So in the worst case, what we did is we took the original data, and this is the adult data set. So everybody who works in um, uh, data science has probably heard about the adult data set. And uh, we uh, took this data set, and we applied a clustering algorithm. We divided it into two clusters, and then applied a geometric split between those two clusters. And now we applied three different kind of um, uh, uh, attacks. Uh, the average th- threshold attack is the exact A- attack as Yelm's at all. Uh, the optimal threshold attack is Yeoms attack with an improved threshold. And the shadow model attack is Shokre's at all attack, which was actually the first membership inference attack that there was. And all three of them break the bounds Clearly and significantly. I mean, uh, they go all the way up to almost 90% accuracy, uh, even before uh, the model, or 80% accuracy when the bound would say uh, it has to be less than 10%. Yeah. So uh, it can be really, really bad case. Okay, it's, this is a case that we are artificially instructed. This is no uh, real world data, but it is still a real world data set. It is the Adult data set, but we split that artificially in members and non-members. And on the right side, you can also see that now the accuracy between the, the accuracy between members and non-members. And often people use the test data set as non-members, which we didn't do. But the the uh, difference, be- the accuracy difference between members and non-members is huge. Then we ask ourselves, okay, so is this actually a privacy attack, right? Is this something that we should worry about? So we split the information based on a sensitive attribute. in this space gender. So now the adult data set is a little bit of a dated data set. So there are only two genders. And uh, we took a percentage of uh, men and a percentage of women. And this is uh, this P percentage that you see in the second picture here. And we uh, worried the, the the percentage, and then wanted to see: Are we going to break the bound again? Now, the break in this case is not as pronounced as it was in the case of um, the artificial split, but still, it clearly breaks uh, the bound. So, even in this case. Um, we can infer sensitive information when different privacy, when the proof of differential privacy would say it would protect. Okay, now we have to ask ourselves: oh, can we somehow capture this? Right? Um, we have shown that when removing the non-ID assumption in Yelm's experiment, the bound does not move. The non-IID assumption. Cannot be possibly be forced in practice. You will never know whether or not your data set is actually i.i.d. or not. You try your best, but you cannot really uh, make it happen. We all experience that in voting polls, right? We always have this margin of error, uh, and that is due to the fact that uh, sampling people is hard, right? And in this case, sampling people who will tell you the truth is hard. But um, we cannot ensure that our samples are non IID. So, uh, bound that with the fact that existing membership attacks actually break the bound, we need to assume that non IID sampling actually is taking place in membership inference. So, we came up with a slightly modified model um so instead of sampling from one distribution we sample from a mixture distribution um, and particularly from one marginal the training data set is sampled from one marginal of the mixture distribution Uh, then we again sample either a member from the training data set or a sample from the mixture distribution without the distribution of uh, the margin of uh, the members and these are our two. Um, samples, this is the experiments that we actually did the bit decided which of the two samples is going to be chosen and given to the adversary and the adversary has to make his guess. So this would be a model that would capture the um, the. observations that we have made when running actual um membership inference attacks so now we can ask ourselves a couple of questions again is there a provable bound um on the membership inference attack by deep learning and the answer is yes yes there is uh but it requires noise proportional to the side of uh, size of the data set uh the bound at least the bound that that one can trivially come up with so um it's N times, uh, it's N times epsilon. And um, uh, that is very inconsequential, right? So even if you would apply extreme noise, I mean extreme noise that you basically have very low accuracy and have a very large training data set, your epsilon would be huge, right? There could clearly be a tighter bound. We cannot rule it out, but we are not, The proof is non-obvious. Could the adversary use the distribution information in the attack? So if we look at this picture again, the adversary is given the distribution information and the answer is yes, yes, he could. Um, But in practice, this distribution is maybe a little bit too convoluted to be useful, right? Um, Marginals can overlap. They're almost infinite marginals in the real world. So this distribution in the real world is rather complex. So a practical attack uh, might not capture that case. Of course, by taking a distribution that um, you tailor in the lab, you could always exploit the information. However, it's important to uh, understand that this distribution information is not necessary for the attack to be successful. And we actually could have removed it And we only didn't remove it because we tried to stay close to Yeomitz Alt's original formulation. Okay, now let me talk about a different formulation of membership inference that is sometimes being promoted. In this case, uh, there's a sample data point S and a training data set. And um, those two could actually be chosen by the adversary both of them sometimes people do not do that to not make it as obvious um, why this model is questionable uh, but sometimes people even argue oh this is a much stronger model because the adversary can choose uh, the samples however then uh, the uh, uh, is the model is either a data set with the sample or with the outer sample is being prepared the bit chooses one of those two samples and then a target model is being trained. And that target model is given to the adversary for membership inference. Again, we can ask ourselves a few questions about this experiment. Does Yeom et al.'s original bound hold in this model? And the answer is yes. Uh, this enforces uh, the bound. You can make the proof of uh, the 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 bound in this model, um, we still need to keep in mind that an actual membership inference attack breaks the bound. So we have to ask ourselves why is that the case? Um, so, one question we can ask is the data scientist free to choose its training center? And the answer is no. There's a dependence between the bits in the experiment, the bit that is chosen in the experiment, and the training of the model. So the adversary can only use start training after that is, uh, bit is chosen. Could even say he has to wait for the adversary to give him the data set. And adversary's choice is not to decide whether or not the sample was drawn from the member or non-member distribution, as it was in the, different, in, in the previous version of the formulation, but whether the training set was performed with or without the sample. So it's a completely different semantic of the bit B. And therefore, in this bit, it's not surprising that the original bound holds, but in an actual membership inference experiment, it does not hold. Okay, so I wanna conclude this part of the presentation. Differential privacy provides strong protection uh, against uh, uh, and uh, and, uh, in, in its attacker model, but does not against the practical membership inference attack. The different emerges when the training data sets are non iid sampled, which is the only case in practice. There is no IID sampled data in practice. And we need to define a formalization of membership inference attack that captures this behavior that we observe in the real world. So this was one part of the presentation I wanted to give. And I wanted to just highlight another aspect um, of uh, how to use um, uh, differential privacy. And that is about data collection. And it is about a combination of multi-party computation and uh, differential privacy. And this is joint work. You see here the, the paper title. Uh, also, the other work was joint work with my students. Um, and this paper will here appear at CCS this year. So, what is the problem? And this is a problem that is happens a lot of ca- times in the real world. We have a lot of devices, usually that as mobile phones, we do some sort of measurement. How often do you click on this map? What words do you type? All sorts of things. What emojis do you use? And we take those measurements. And we uh, collect them at some data collector. However, the data collector is only interested in an analysis and a statistic over that data and not in the individual data. So what we actually want is we want to go from the samples right away to the analysis. Okay, how is this usually done? Usually this is done in practice right now with something which is called local differential privacy. So each client randomizes its, its value and sends them to the untrusted server, which if there are sufficiently enough data points can reconstruct the approximately correct uh, statistics. So I don't need a trusted data server and this. However, I need huge amounts of data because the accuracy is very low. And the central uh, model uh, the clients would send plain, plain text values, but the server would be trusted, which is our problem to start with. In this case, we could get high accuracy even for low data, uh, low number of data samples, but we have the trusted server. So what we do is we emulate the trusted server in a multi-party computation. So uh, it's not necessarily clients, but some set of servers, they jointly compute the function that the trusted server would compute, So we don't have one trusted server and we have high accuracy also for small data. However, the question always is, is this efficient? So here we have a computation where we want to collect key value statistics. Also a problem that very frequently is solved using uh, local differential privacy and there are many values for this. So here uh, we have a number of clients, they have a keyword and they have an associated value. And the server wants to compute, for example, in most cases, what we consider the, the mean or the sum or uh, some statistic about the the values per keyword. The uh, as I said, the the uh, um, existing solutions uh, that have been proposed in the literature mostly use uh, local differential privacy. And the challenge here is that differential privacy, if you also make the keyword and the value a little bit noisy, then you break their correlation and uh, the statistics. uh, uh, Get messed up, however, um, there are ways of how you can try to solve this still you're in the local differential privacy module so you need noise proportional to the uh, number of clients. You could also do this uh, in multi-party computation. However, if you secret share the keyword, then uh, the servers need to index into some sort of hash table, database table, or whatever where the keywords are stored using the secret shares. And uh, unless you have ORAN, which again is extremely slow with extremely large constants you have to essentially for each keyword scan the entire database. If you're not using RAM-based multi-party computation, which however has even larger constants and for most practical purposes is even slower. You could also try to add dummies uh, such that the uh, keyword values are uh, sort of the the number of keywords is perturbed. Um, however, you would need a large number of dummies because you cannot avoid sending the real keywords because that would otherwise destroy the statistics. Yeah? So you always have to send, the clients have to always send their, their, their real keywords and you could add one-sided dummies, a, a shifted Laplace distribution, a, a clipped shifted for stress distribution, And then you you would have it, but you need a huge number of domain elements. It would clog your network. So here's the idea and it's a very simple idea, but it's an extremely neat, extremely powerful idea. And the idea is what we call selective MPC. So you have here two clients. One has a a dog, has a cat, one has a dog keyword. And um, they create values and they not send to all of the servers, but only to a subset of the servers. So, on the first one, sends to one and two, and the second one is actually a dummy. He sends to two and three. So we have now created false negatives for some of the servers because the secret share for the remaining nodes is logically zero, which is the neutral element in a summation, and we can therefore ignore. now, after that, after all of the keywords have been collected, uh, we now have the keywords in plain because we can use them in plane, and we have generated false positives and false negatives entries. So nobody knows what the real value, a uh, real number of keywords is, but the values are secret shared between sufficiently many other uh, servers. We can now aggregate them a regular computation, and we just need to scan the database once. And at at the end of the scan, at the end of each keyword aggregation, um, the server's simply gonna add differentially private noise, uh, central noise, according to a central distribution, a uh, a, um, Laplace noise distribution with, which we call epsilon F, and that is our total um, summation and the leakage of the, the previous, Uh, case of uh, collecting the keywords plus the noise and this this is our total privacy budget so now we can see we can compare this to other solutions and um our protocol uh, has a communication of the number of samples that is each sample sent by a user plus the sum some of the dummies that we need which are however relatively small uh, a rate factor uh based on each keyword. So they are proportional to the keywords. And our MPC complexity is only O of them We only need to compute for each keyword once. And our error is independent of the number of users. So if we look at the local DP column, we see that they have very low communication because um, they uh, basically send one message for all of their keywords, but uh, they have a very high error, that is the square root of the number of users. And the naive MPC solution has the complexity of all the samples times all of the keywords. So if you would execute the naive solution, uh, the running time would be days, hours, several hours, and you could not possibly compute and this uh uh, the statistics for a reasonable data set size however if you look at our uh, time and we have different kinds of curves here l is the number of servers uh, and we have to have multiple servers of course Um, we see that in green the malicious computation which is uh, only necessary in a few cases um where the semi-honest computation we are faster than two seconds in this case and i can show a a set for um uh, uh, the uh, multiple uh, keywords later on and uh, the more servers we have the leakage from uh, the plain text keywords approaches a value of 0.5 and there's an explanation on the paper of why this bound exists But you see that we also relatively quickly approach this bound. And we send very few data elements uh, uh, on the order of a few megabytes, even for many records. So uh, here again is our single node benchmark. Uh, The interesting one is if you compute 10,000 keys. with five nodes in the semi honest model, it's taking us 20 seconds. And in the malicious model, it's taking us 26.27 20, seconds. So you can really see. Um, uh, and it's really, uh, it's really a, a very efficient multi party computation. All right. So I can now approximately wrap up my talk. Um, This is the conclusion of this uh, presentation still. So we have seen that MPC can provide almost the accuracy of the central model without the need for a trusted server. Um, MPC can be efficient on the order of seconds in our case. And the selective MPC that we came up is a very useful tool in key value statistics. Now, with this, I would like to conclude my talk. Uh, I, I'll thank you for the attention. I already see that there are a few questions in the chat uh, and, and, and the questions and answers. And uh, here is uh, a little bit of a summary of um, uh, my talk. And uh, feel free to reach out to me via email, even after this talk.
0: All right, great. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate this presentation. Um, So let's look at the questions here. So just one question real quick. it it, Could you share this PowerPoint presentation with us?
1: I will share it. Yes, of course.
0: Okay, great. That's awesome, because we will uh, post it on our website, um, along with the video uh, for this. Um, The video will be available on our website at Sirius.purdue.edu and also on our YouTube page. Um, The other question, I believe uh, this was in regards to slide, around slide 35 here, it says, why is E raised to the power of epsilon used and not just
1: epsilon alone? I'm not sure that I understand the question. What is epsilon used? Um,
0: Why is the power of epsilon being used,
1: I believe,
0: is what the question is. Where is your
1: power of Epsilon? I don't see it.
0: Maybe it was before that, because it came in a, around that slide. Um, <clears <clears let me see here. Benjamin. Benjamin, did you want to
1: use your mic? Ah, oh, okay, in the beginning of DP. Okay. Uh, all right, so, so we have a question on the definition yes. of differential privacy here. And E, why is it E to the Epsilon? Yes, I believe that's a question. Yeah. Okay, so um, that is, um, that the reason for this is uh, how the bound on the Laplace distribution works. So Epsilon is the privacy parameter, right? So um, you can prove that this bound holds for the Laplace mechanism. And if you have, you have a nice composition theorem now, because if you have one party present, then the probability changes by at most the factor of E to the epsilon. If you have a difference of two parties, It changes by e to the epsilon times e to the epsilon, or two times e to the epsilon. Or sorry, e to the two epsilon. Or if you uh, have three parties missing, it's e to the three epsilon. So you have what's called the group privacy notion in this definition that you can easily apply. So for each party, you approximately lose um a, a an epsilon type of um uh an epsilon ve- uh, equivalent value of information that's about the liquid regulation so um this is a very different question i didn't go into that question uh, a lot this is a very good question Huang. um Many theoretical results only hold for epsilon between zero and one. However, if you want to do a practical machine learning model, you're probably already somewhere at an epsilon of three, otherwise your accuracy is going to be very, very, very low. And as we have seen in many cases, it can still provide uh, uh, a good level of privacy, unless you're in, in your data set is good. Now, uh, the cases of local differential privacy that I presented. So Apple actually collects um, emoji information um, using this local differential privacy what I, where I presented for key value stores and a different type of statistic. They actually use local differential privacy here. And they initially had it at epsilon of 14. I think they lowered it afterwards but epsilon of 14 the um theoretical guarantee that you saw up there e2 the 14 is of course huge right so the theoretical guarantee is completely useless completely inconsequential however in practice even for local differential privacy which is the what they use here and E of the four, uh, an epsilon of 14 still gives you a pretty good uh, protection. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes, so this is Mike Atala. Yes, Florian, it makes perfect sense. You answered All it. All right, thank you. Thank you. You <laughs> thank answered it perfectly. Perfect answer. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mike. <laughs> uh, excellent talk, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Much appreciated. Any more questions that I should answer?
0: No, it looks like we don't have any more questions here, uh, but yeah, thanks again, Florian. It, it was it was a great honor to have you back again and um, you know, really appreciate this talk um, and hopefully we can see you on campus sometime uh, in the near future too, that uh, would be great.
1: Yes, of course, that would be fantastic. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Uh, so attendees, thanks a lot
0: uh, for joining us. We'll have another uh, seminar next week, 30 Eastern time. Uh, thanks Florian, take care.
1: Thank you, bye-bye.